0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Neufeld. Well, today we're excited to start a brand new series in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 to 13, and a message and series entitled, The Price of Victory.
1: I have for some time now, been deeply concerned because so much of the Christian church has, well, I guess for so long now, heard a message of realized eschatology. So what do I mean by that? I mean that for many people, the truth of what lies waiting for us beyond the grave is presented as if it were already being experienced in the present hour. That's to say God's future promises of grace are being described as if we're supposed to be having them right now. And it is this misrepresentation of the Bible's future promises that has led many Christians to feel disappointed and betrayed. Why is it that I'm not experiencing what the Bible promised, they ask? You know, perhaps the Bible's promises aren't true after all. Now, it is true that in the present hour, we do already experience a foretaste of some of what is promised to us in the future. For instance, Romans 8.23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies and so we may be groaning in the present hour but we have received a first fruit or we've already begun to taste some of what lies ahead and that's the point it's but a taste it's a whisper an inkling but a sound not the whole thing the whole thing is the future promise That doesn't mean the first fruit is meaningless. No, it is intensely meaningful. It's a rich experience in this world of sin and despair. It fills us with great joy, but it is the foretaste of what is yet to come. So let's get practical. I've heard some Christians say, I was once a sinner, but now I'm saved by grace. And I'm aware that in some circles, there is a theology that you can receive entire sanctification in this life. And they mean by that, that in this life, you can lose all desire for sin. The flesh is completely defeated now. So you can utterly triumph in this life. You see, a future promise is applied to today, and it's expected for today. And there are others who argue that you never need to be sick in this life. And still others say you need never struggle with the lack of finances in this life, or you can triumph over all your enemies in this life. It's called realized eschatology. That is, we're acting as if Christ has already returned. Many build their expectations on that idea. But then comes what I like to call biblical realism. You know, Romans 7 reminds us that there are times when we do the very things that we don't want to do. Yeah, Christians do fight with the flesh and with the power of sin. It's a constant fight and a fight that's so overwhelming that Paul says, Ho, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And no, that's not a description of Paul's life before he was a Christian. This is his life as a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. Now then, those who have been taught realized eschatology say, "Well, oh, that's not possible. You see, they assume that they've won the fight with the lower nature right now. And then to their shock, they find, you know, sin in their church and among other Christians. And then suddenly and alarmingly, they find sin in their own lives. And they also find up to this point they, they had no theology to know what to do now. And in discouragement and in despair, some even wander from the faith. But that's because they were sold a half-truth. And so today I'm introducing us to a study of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 to 13. And I promise you, these chapters, I think, will utterly destroy an idea of any realized eschatology at all. You know, some time ago, we began the study of Second Corinthians. And it's a study that took us through the first seven chapters of the book. And there we learn some wonderful promises. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Or consider 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Or about 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or who can forget 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, those are glorious promises, and they're true, and every single believer should be expecting these very same things. But how easy it is to forget that in the very same chapters, well, we find things like Second Corinthians 1 verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Or how about Second Corinthians 4, 7 to 10? but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. See, the Christian life, as it's described in this wonderful book, is a life in which the new has genuinely come and transformed everything. But the struggle and the despair and the sacrifice and the suffering of this present hour are very real. That's because as we studied the first part of the book, we found other passages that we had to grapple with. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, for we don't want you to be unaware that we were burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Then we discovered that the situation of rebellion against God's leadership in the Corinthian church had become so pronounced that Paul had visited them. Indeed, he calls it the painful visit. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, we read, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." You know, do you see there's an experience of wasting away in the present hour? It's real and it's felt. But there's a future promise that our present sufferings and trials and groaning, miseries, they're all going to be light in comparison to what God will give his children in the age to come. See, what we find in 2 Corinthians is the overlap of two ages. The new has come to us in Christ, but the fight with the old is so real that it can drive us to despair of life itself. And what I'm trying to portray is a book, Second Corinthians, which is a needed antidote to the deception of realized eschatology. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, you're gonna know that it was a problem church. Anyone studying First Corinthians will soon find a church fraught with problems, problems with unity and church divisions, Lawsuits were common between believers, sexual immorality, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, false teaching was rampant, well, the list goes on and on. Reading the two Corinthian letters reminds us that perfection among believers is not found on this side of eternity, and it's definitely not. But please don't think that this description of the problems in that church means the application to our day is that we should expect sins among Christians. Well, yes, we should. We still wage a war with the world of flesh and the devil, but we also know that we have been given a new heart and no believer can simply lie down in sin and remain there. God has given us a foretaste of what is to come. So let's start by stepping back and getting a picture of Paul's relationship to the church he started in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. Paul probably arrived in that city in the year AD 50, And according to Luke, this happened during his second missionary journey, and Corinth was a city in the south of Greece in what was then called the province of Achaia. Corinth was the most important city in ancient Greece. And Paul has a remarkable ministry there, probably the most successful ministry that he had enjoyed up to that point in time. And Paul remained in the city for a year and a half. But later, after he was gone, he hears of problems in the church. And it would seem that Paul actually wrote four letters to that church. Yeah, it's true. We only have two of them, but he did write them four times. So how do we know that? Well, let's start with his first letter. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so you see, there had been a prior letter that is prior to 1 Corinthians. Now what's become of that first letter? Well, we simply don't have it. And quite sure we'll never find it. In his divine sovereignty, God has willed that only two of the four letters have been preserved. Now then, what gave rise to the writing of 1 Corinthians? Well, look, 1 Corinthians 1 11, Paul says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And of course, that's not the only problem there was, but but Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to help them solve their many problems, and indeed a great many people reading 1 Corinthians today still find it a very helpful book in solving so many of our contemporary Christian problems.
0: back to the Bible. Canada has just released a new book written by Dr. John Newfeld entitled Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The moment Christ died for our sins, we've been pronounced not guilty in God's law court. When you understand the depth of your salvation and the powerful benefits available to you within it, not only will you be transformed, but your joy and confidence will be apparent to all. And if we could use anything these days, it's the joy of our salvation. While Making the Most of Your Salvation will teach you how to access the blessings that God has already put in place through the glory of your salvation. Order your copy online today as our free gift during the month of February. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to help solve the problems in that church, and it would seem that the Corinthian Christians didn't react very well to Paul or to the letter he had written. Timothy, Paul's right hand, had reported to Paul that the Corinthians were rejecting Paul's leadership. The situation in the church was deteriorating. False prophets were now rampant, and they were undermining Paul, and they were saying, look, why should you listen to him? And it would seem, at least for a while, that the false prophets were winning the day. And that's when Paul made a decision to make a quick visit to that church. That's the one I referred to already, the visit Paul called the painful visit. It was painful to everyone, including Paul. It appears it didn't go well. And so Paul decides to send the Corinthians another letter. Again, this is a letter that we don't have, and it was written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but but Paul does mention that letter in 2nd Corinthians 2, verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. And then after that letter, that letter we don't have, but many Bible teachers have called it the severe letter, something seemed to have happened in Corinth. Amazingly, the majority in that church, most likely through the leadership of Titus, who delivered the severe letter, well, the majority repented. There came a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit into that troubled church, and they must have gotten onto their knees and got right with God. And the next step was to get right with the Apostle Paul. And Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to restore the broken relationship that had existed between the church and the Apostle who had been appointed by Jesus. You know, in some ways, Second Corinthians is a model for how restoration can happen, you know, when sinning and broken Christians do turn away from their sins. But the book is also written at a time when the stressors of ministry on Paul's life and the persecutions he had endured from without and the constant challenge of the false prophets and false teachers from within and the steady barrage of criticism while it was all beginning to wear on him. He was, in his own words, wearied of life itself. I wonder if you're surprised by that. A godly Christian pastor, an evangelist, a man whose missionary enterprises were establishing churches everywhere, that this man was so discouraged that at times he wished the Lord would simply call him home. Listen to one of the greatest preachers in the English-speaking world that is Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said. He remarked, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to experience such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Are you shocked to hear such a faithful servant of God talk that way? You know, if you are, I wonder if you've bitten off the false doctrine of realized eschatology. Every day with Jesus, you know, is sweeter than the day before. I have nothing but joy and victory, and I'm a king's kid, and and my king is making sure that this child doesn't get mistreated. See, that's the kind of nonsense that some of us have learned. And if that's you, perhaps you should read Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and by God. See what the psalmist is doing. He is, in effect, preaching to himself. He's overwhelmed with discouragement, so he's telling his soul, hope in God. God has promised him that the best days do lie ahead. You know, when we study 2 Corinthians, we find Paul, having gone through much grief, now dealing with a repentant church. But everyone didn't repent. There still was a dug-in, ready-to-fight minority who would not accept Paul's leadership. They were determined to fight him to the end. The battle wasn't over, and that's what we're going to find in this letter. But on the other hand, the majority realized that it was Jesus himself who had sent to them the apostle Paul, and it was from Paul that they had first heard the gospel. It was Jesus himself who had called Paul into his missionary ministry. Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles who had also been set aside to lay the foundation for the church, and it was time to get on board and end the rebellion. 2 Corinthians chapters 1 to 7, that part of the book that we have studied in the past, well, it's a section in which Paul lays out his legitimacy as an apostle. And Paul portrays himself as an apostle, to be sure, but he's also their spiritual father. He is the one who brought them the word of God. He is the pastor who deeply loved this group of Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it becomes apparent that there was one man who had caused Paul much pain, and he'd caused the church much pain. Many Bible teachers believe that this man was the very one who was having an open sexual relationship with his stepmother. And you can find about that from reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And furthermore, at least so it seems to me, this man must have been the tip of the spear of those who were attacking Paul. But even though this man had caused much pain, it seems, at the urging of Paul, the church had taken disciplinary action against that man. And amazingly, you know, the man had repented. And response, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, to reaffirm your love for him. And those few lines really do reflect the heart attitude of the great apostle, an apostle who insisted that God's people acknowledge his God-given authority to speak to them of God's demands for a life of holiness and sexual purity. Now also, he speaks to the church about how to reconcile with a repentant brother. And that's just part of what we find in 2 Corinthians 1-7. You know, chapters 1 to 7 is written from a loving pastor to his flock. It tells us both the promises of the gospel as well as the demands of the gospel. But never in the reading of those chapters do we ever come anything close to the realized eschatology that's common today. Yet yeah, it is true. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But until Christ comes again, we're going to have to fight for holiness, and we're going to have to fight against false teachers. And we're going to have to fight to make the gospel known in this world, and we're going to have to fight to constantly bring about an atmosphere that leads to repentance and revival in the church. And in the coming weeks, we're going to move beyond chapters 1 to 7 to the rest of the book. We're going to come to chapters 8 and 9, which is going to seem like an interlude. Paul's going to be speaking about money and about offering. And we're going to learn a great deal about this in the days to come, but it would seem that in better times that this church had committed itself to contribute to a special project. You know, it was about providing aid to the financially destitute Christians who were living in Jerusalem. But because of all the trouble, an earlier commitment of giving had been forgotten. But Paul had not forgotten. And so it's time for the church in Corinth to get back to this important giving project. Chapters 8 and 9 will have a great deal to say about what we should think about giving and care for the poor today. As we study this section, we're we're going to have to confront our attitudes towards money. You know, I've found that a great many Christians, you know, become quite uncomfortable about the matter of giving. And these two chapters are going to challenge our attitudes about money. And with that, we come to the last section of 2 Corinthians, and it's chapters 10 to 13. You know, that section will be Paul's appeal to the unrepentant minority that has dug in in the church in Corinth and refuses to get right with God. Paul begins that section not with a blast of cannon fire, but rather he begins that section by entreating them with meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now look, he's not afraid to be bold, but we're going to see his bold face in just a moment, but now he begins with a fatherly act of love and concern. And with that, Paul turns his attention on the false prophets, who've been preaching a false gospel, a gospel a number of them have followed. And Paul takes them on, on a number of levels. He attacks their view of Jesus, which he says is patently false. They're preaching a different Jesus, and furthermore, they're deceitful workers. And not only that, they don't love the flock. It's evidenced by the fact that they're unwilling to suffer for the flock. And then he ends this last section of the book by confronting his hearers to test themselves, to see if they're truly in the faith. It's very strong stuff. That's because for us who read this, we're going to have to do the same. Who are you listening to? Which, Which voices are you following? What's the fruit that's evident in your life? Is your vision of following Jesus a vision that you're not going to have to fight the impulses of sin or to suffer for the advancement of the gospel? And that brings us to where we started today. As we study 2 Corinthians 8 to 13, we're going to be asked to jettison the easy believism gospel that's so popular today. And in its place, we're going to encounter a gospel that promises great future blessings as well as a great struggle in the present moment. We're going to have to contemplate the price of victory.
0: John, thanks. It's going to be a great series. Let me ask you this. How should we address the presence of carnality in the church, particularly when it's observed by young people?
1: Well, I think we need to continue to stress that the will of God for our lives is our holiness, that we refrain from sin. Paul, especially in 2 Thessalonians, speaks about sexual sin and that we honor God with our bodies, and that we begin to bring God's people back to this as a central issue in the life of each church. So I think that can be a place of starting. Thanks so much, John.
0: And remember to join us again tomorrow for a continuing series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. with so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel. We wanna share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other, an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's Royal Palace, worship at the Garden Tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Lafagaine's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests. The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. Registration is limited, so call Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash
1: israelexperience.